Hi there, Neil here. Obviously, you love to travel. That's why you're listening to this podcast. Circa, our app available right now from the App Store on iOS, is filled with podcasts and guides for travelers. But more than that, it has a feature that we're calling the Circa Concierge, where you can have any question about any place you're traveling answered by real people on the ground. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. And hey, if you've got questions about Barcelona, you might even get me. Because I love to help people discover my city. And if you're the same way for the city where you live, then we want you to become part of the Circa Concierge too. Right now, we're searching for concierges in Barcelona, Rome, London, Paris, Madrid, Venice, and New York City. Don't see your city listed? That's okay. We'll be rolling out new cities throughout the year, and yours might just be next. If you love where you live and love to help travelers, sign up now to be a Circa Concierge. Help out our users and earn tips for the knowledge you have about your own city or country. Head over to circatravel.com forward slash concierge and sign up today. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. In this episode of Killer Trip, we're headed to the Victorian streets of London to explore one of the most infamous serial killer cases in history, Jack the Ripper. You're about to hear part two of a two-part episode, so if you haven't listened to part one already, go ahead and do that. If you want to find out more about some of the places and people we mention or dive deeper into this story, you can find maps, notes, and pictures in the Circa app. So put your headphones on, Maybe wait for it to get dark and listen closely. Circa, love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it. On September 26th, 1888, Dr. Thomas Bernardo paid a visit to Whitechapel. A street preacher and social reformer focused on helping the children of the East End, he visited a lodging house at 32 Flower and Dean Street. He wanted to talk to the women of the area to find out more about their lives and their needs. While there, he listened as a group of women sat in the lodging house kitchen. They talked about the Whitechapel murders. He later recalled that the women looked incredibly frightened, with one woman lamenting, we're all up to no good. No one cares what becomes of us. Perhaps some of us will be killed next. Four days later, Dr. Bernardo would realize that one of the women he talked to that day in the kitchen had just become Jack the Ripper's third victim, Elizabeth Stride. Dr. Thomas Bernardo never forgot her.
When I travel, I'm not interested in just visiting the beautiful beaches, the theme parks, and the tourist traps of a place. The well-manicured and sanitized story of it. I like to go deeper and darker. I like to find out what the darkest moments in history can tell us about the places where they happened. The crime is only the beginning of the story. This is Killer Trip. I'm your host, Dominique Ferrari. Elizabeth Gustafsdotter was born in rural Sweden on November 27, 1843, to a well-off family. In 1860, as a young woman, on the precipice of adulthood, she'd moved to the city, Gothenburg, to gain employment as a domestic servant. We know very little about her life during this time, but it seems that all was well until 1865, when Elizabeth was arrested for prostitution. Now, a quick beat here. She was arrested for prostitution, but not all women arrested with that charge were, in fact, prostitutes. Some of them were women who'd found themselves pregnant out of wedlock or living in sin, as they might say. And Elizabeth was, in fact, pregnant. We don't know by whom. Was it one of her employers? Another servant? Someone else? Had it been consensual? We don't know, and never will. But now, Elizabeth was in trouble for two reasons. One, she was an unwed, pregnant woman in very conservative, at the time, very Christian Sweden. And two, she had contracted syphilis. Back then, there was no cure. But there were, however, plenty of treatments, if you could call them that. Elizabeth was put into the system and forced to undergo these treatments, which included taking mercury pills. This caused her to deliver a stillborn daughter. Now a marked woman in Sweden, a registered sex worker, Elizabeth's prospects of a good life had dwindled to almost nothing. She finished treatment and was declared cured and released. But to what kind of future? Lucky for Elizabeth, someone would offer her a helping hand, and this would become a theme in Elizabeth's life, snatching another chance from the jaws of defeat. This time, it was a woman named Maria Wisner. Maria was the wife of Carl Wisner, and she was on a mission to show that these fallen women could be reformed. She invited Elizabeth to their home to become their servant. And by all accounts, Maria and Elizabeth bonded. Elizabeth wasn't there very long when her mother died and Elizabeth received an inheritance. She talked it over with Maria. She would never have a real chance to make her life better in Sweden now. She needed a fresh start. And so Maria agreed to help Elizabeth immigrate to London. She even found a new set of employers for her in Posh Hyde Park. And so on February 7th, 1866, Elizabeth made her way there. 
Her work in Hyde Park seems to have gone well. And then in 1869, at the age of 26, she met and married John Stride, a 47-year-old carpenter from Kent. Elizabeth truly had her second chance. John and Elizabeth were unable to have children, likely because of Elizabeth's latent syphilis, something they wouldn't have known. Because Elizabeth wasn't cured. Her disease had simply gone into the latent phase, meaning it was almost assured that at some point she would relapse and enter the final stage of it, which could be fatal. Despite this probably painful reality, the two seemed to have had a good relationship. John was a carpenter, but he had bigger dreams. And eventually he and Elizabeth opened up a coffee shop on the East End. Unfortunately, it wasn't a success likely owing to the fact that people in the part of town they'd set up shop in were more interested in a pint than a percolator. John and Elizabeth still had a lifeline. John's father was well off and nearing the end of his life. Surely, John stood a chance to inherit a decent sum. Against this bet of future funds, John and Elizabeth opened a second coffee shop in a more ideal location. But when John's father passed, they realized that he'd been written out of the will. His spiteful father had been unhappy that his son had left for London, and that was that. So, now likely in debt, as their second shop began failing, things fell apart. And what we do know is that by 1877, Elizabeth was separated from John and was arrested again for sex work. Her hope for a second chance had been a fantasy, which is fitting because the next chapter of her life would revolve around fantasy. On the 3rd of September in 1878, the Princess Alice, a passenger steamer, headed up the Thames in the dark hours of the night. The trip had been billed as a moonlight trip that would take passengers from London Bridge to Kent and back. But sometime between 7.20 and 7.45 p.m., as the Princess Alice steamed leisurely on, a coal freighter named the Bywell Castle was headed right for them. The ship struck the Princess Alice. It was a perfect T-bone hit right into the paddle box of the Princess Alice. She split into two and began rapidly sinking. The passengers stood no chance. Somewhere between six and seven hundred people died that night. But the thing was, this was a simple river pleasure cruise, not a transatlantic international crossing. There had been no official roster taken, so nobody knew for sure who had been on the boat. And Elizabeth Stride was prepared to use this fact to buy herself another chance. She began peddling the story that she and her husband John had been on board with their nine children, but that John had died trying to save two of them. And now she needed the money to get the other seven out of an orphanage. The story worked well enough to garner Elizabeth the sympathy of many and the money she needed to survive in London for several years. Elizabeth was a fantastic storyteller, and she needed to be for her next chapter. One day, while peddling her story on the streets of London, 
Elizabeth was approached by a seamstress. The woman, Mary Malcolm, walked up to her and with hopeful eyes said, Elizabeth, is that you? It was indeed Elizabeth, but clearly not the Elizabeth Mary meant, as Elizabeth Stride had never seen Mary Malcolm in her life. But Elizabeth went with it. The woman, it turned out, had terrible eyesight and had mistaken Elizabeth for her long-lost sister. Elizabeth obliged Mary Malcolm's mistaken identity for five years, living off Mary to make ends meet. In that time, she also took up with another lover, Michael Kidney, but their relationship was full of domestic abuse, arguments, and drinking. They'd get back together, break up, reconcile, repeat. And in 1888, they were in an off-again moment in their relationship. Whenever they were off, Elizabeth would stay at one of the several lodging houses. And at the end of September, she was at the one on Flower and Dean Street, as she and the other women sat with Dr. Bernardo talking about the killer on the loose. The original building on Flower and Dean Street no longer exists today, but if you check it out on a map you'll notice it is literally a stone's throw from Thrall Street and Brick Lane, the area where the Ripper's first victim, Polly Nichols, spent her last night. This has led Scotland Yard forensic profilers to believe that the Ripper must have lived on or very near this street. One day, after Dr. Bernardo's conversation with these women, a new titillating turn in the case would make the news, or perhaps was made by the news. On September 27th, 1888, a letter arrived in the Central News Agency in London. As it was picked up in the newsroom, they would have immediately noticed two odd things about it. First, it was written in red ink, and second, it was addressed to Dear Boss. But if the outside of the envelope raised the hairs on anyone's neck, It didn't hold a candle to what they discovered inside. The letter read, Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I've laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I'm down on whores, and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You'll soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do... I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp. I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. P.S. Don't mind me giving the trade name. This was the first time the name Jack the Ripper had ever been written or spoken. Certainly wouldn't be the last. The name, of course, would stick forever. 
The Central News Agency wasn't sure of the veracity of the letter, so they held on to it for two days, eventually deciding to hand it over to the Metropolitan Police on September 29th. That night was a windy and rainy one in London. But Elizabeth was riding high. She'd just been paid six pence for cleaning rooms in the boarding house, and she'd gone to the Queen's Head Public House at what is now 74 Commercial Street in Spitalfields. Her movements over the next few hours are hard to track exactly, but she was seen by several different people with several different men. One of them holding a suspicious-looking package, one with a dark felt hat, one with a long brown jacket. You can see where so many of the images that came to be associated with Jack the Ripper came from. But here's what we do know. At 1 a.m., Louis Daimschultz, a jewelry salesman, entered Dutfield's yard, driving his cart and pony. The gates are wide open. But as soon as he enters, his pony seems to startle and refuse to walk on. The yard is completely dark so Lewis can't see what the holdup is. Then he notices a heap on the ground. He tries to move it with his whip, but he can't, it's heavy. He hops down to get a better look. He tries to strike a match to give himself some light. Remember, no street lighting on the east end. The wind and the rain have other ideas. He can't get it to light to see what's what, but he knows it's a woman, passed out or dead. He heads into the International Workmen's Educational Club, which was a house transformed into a club catering to the Jewish community that's just next door. He runs into the club to check on his wife. He finds her okay and is relieved. Then he grabs a candle and several other men to head back out they don't need to get very close to realize what they've found. It's Elizabeth Stride in a pool of blood and just dead. In fact, most of her body is still quite warm. And while her throat is cut, there is no further mutilation to her body. This chilling fact will lead investigators then and now to conclude that it is extremely likely that Lewis had interrupted the killer in the act. In fact, he'd still been in that courtyard when Lewis entered with his pony. And it was a good thing for Lewis that his match hadn't lit, or perhaps he'd have become the next victim. But when he ran into the club, that gave the killer the time he needed to escape. He escaped, but he wasn't on the run. He was on the hunt. While the police and the medical examiner gathered around Elizabeth Stride's body, another woman was being savagely murdered just blocks away. Likely enraged that his perfect kill had been ruined, the Ripper was determined to find another victim. And just an hour later, he did. Her name was Catherine Eddowes. Kate was born in April of 1842 in Wolverhampton, which is in the West Midlands, to George and Catherine Eddowes. Her father and her father's family were in the tin-making trade, and unfortunately for the Eddowes family, 
their story was about to collide with the Industrial Revolution and set Kate on the path and to the place she'd meet her end in. Tin making had been a profitable trade for centuries, but with the dawn of machinery, its value was rapidly diminishing. Amid this disruption, her father George saw he and his family's wages diminishing and was determined to do something about it. He ended up leading a strike. Predictably, though, capitalism stops for no one, and so George was fired and blacklisted. He would never work in Wolverhampton again. So he and Catherine packed up their kids and moved to London. There, the family grew and grew, and I do mean grew. Eventually, there were 10 Eddowes children, but George's wages were not growing, so the family was increasingly in tighter and tighter situations. Looking for a way out, they were able to get six-year-old Kate a spot in the Dowgate Ward School, a charity school for girls, in 1848. This was a huge opportunity. There, Kate learned to read and to do domestic service work. But alas, fate had other ideas for Kate. In 1855, Kate's mother began to cough. It was tuberculosis. She suffered for a year with it and died in 1856, leaving her 10 children to George. But within a year of her death, George became too ill to work as well. The older daughters quickly found men to marry. The younger children were sadly sent to orphan workhouses, but Kate, at 14, was right in the middle. Too young to marry, but old enough to make a wage at something. She was sent to live with an aunt and uncle and began to work in the tin industry, just like the rest of her family before her. She hated it. Kate had bigger ideas. She loved to sing. She wanted more out of life. And she also perhaps had a streak of her father's rebellion in her. She was caught stealing from her workplace to pawn the items and was fired. Her aunt and uncle were scandalized by her behavior and sent her away to another uncle, Ted Eddowes. Ted was another story. If her other uncle and aunt had been a bit uptight about her behavior, Ted was a bare-knuckle boxer. I don't mean that as a metaphor. He was literally a bare-knuckled boxer known as the snob, just like those mustachioed shirtless Victorian posters. Kate loved it. The energy, the thrill, the money it could bring. This was surely an exciting chapter of Kate's life. She still had a job in the tin industry, this time as a polisher, making sure the tin trays that high-class women in country estates served their guests on shone like a mirror. All was well until 1862, when Kate met Thomas Conway. Thomas was a former Royal Irish soldier who'd been discharged and was now a traveling chapbook salesman. Chapbooks were these short, cheap books filled with ballads and poetries and tall tales that peddlers would sell on the cheap. Though Thomas couldn't read, he sold them to those who could. And Kate fell hard for the traveling Irishman with stories of his time as a soldier in Bombay and his travels through the country. Kate's family, however, hated Thomas, passionately. Every one of her siblings and her Uncle Ted were against their union, but Kate had never paid much attention to what others wanted her to do, and she wasn't about to start. 
She left with Thomas, and they began traveling together. Soon, Kate was pregnant. They remained unmarried, which wasn't uncommon at the time, as marriage did take some time and money. They made their way around the countryside selling chapbooks until 1866, when finally, they caught a break. A dark break. One of Kate's distant cousins, Charles Robinson, well, he was a murderer. He killed his wife, Harriet. And Kate wrote a ballad about it. Thomas made the ballad into a chapbook, and the thing hit. Here's one of the parting lines of it. A foreboding line, to say the least. May my end be a warning unto all mankind. Think on my unhappy fate and bear me in your mind. Thomas and Kate's luck was turning around. They made some decent money, and perhaps now Kate's family would accept Thomas as her partner. But here's the thing. I wanted this to be a romantic story, the one where their love was true and overcame the concerns of her family, where their sheer devotion to each other and Kate's lovely voice was their path out of poverty and shame, the plucky couple against the world. This isn't that story. Because while on paper they had just made good, the truth was that Thomas was abusive to Kate. Very, very abusive. On countless occasions, Kate would show up on one of her sister's doorsteps beaten beyond recognition, pleading for a place for her and her children. They would always oblige, and Kate would always go back. Their early ballad success evaporated. They were struggling to make ends meet as Kate birthed a son. They ended up in the workhouse. To cope with the violence and the poverty, Kate had also begun drinking. Eventually, Kate's family couldn't take her behavior and her going back with Thomas anymore. Her relationship with them soured, and now she was truly alone with Thomas. The violence continued until 1881, when finally, for some reason, they separated for good. Kate was able to make amends with one of her sisters, Eliza, who gave her a place to stay. And at some point, Kate met another man named John Kelly. More after the break. Hi, everyone. Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. John was nothing like Thomas. As far as we can tell, he was kind and gentle to Kate, which must have been a welcome new feeling for her. But John was, however, a drunk, just like Kate. And we know where this goes. 
The two seemed to have truly loved each other, but their drinking saw them go down an endless spiral of lost jobs, lost wages, lost relationships with friends and family until they ended up in the lodging houses of Whitechapel in September of 1888. Here's one more tragic turn of fate in Kate's story. This one related to the weather. If the weather in 1888 hadn't been so unusually horrible in England, Kate wouldn't have been in London that fall at all. Every harvest season, she and John made their way to the countryside to pick hops and make some money. But that year, the crops had failed because it was unseasonably cold. We're talking sometimes going down into the 40s over the summer. There are even reports that it snowed briefly in London that summer, and it rained incessantly. It killed the hops crop. With no work in the fields, Kate and John headed back to London on September 27, 1888. It's one night later, on the night of September 28, 1888. Kate and John are drinking in the pub. They're having a good time, but they've had too much. And soon, say it with me now, they have no money for lodging the next night. The morning of the 29th, they wake up, determined to find money for food and lodging that night. Kate is a plucky survivor, and so she comes up with a plan. She grabs John's boots right off his feet and takes them to a pawnbroker on Church Street. She pawns them under the name Jane Kelly and gets enough money for a meal and a bed for one person. She returns to John with the money. There's not enough for both of them to have a bed. According to a very drunk John's recollection, they argue over who should take that bed. He wants her to have it, but because he has no boots now, and it's like I said, unseasonably cold, Kate tells him he's got to take it. She walks off from John that afternoon around 2 p.m. It's the last time he ever sees her. Kate's last night was rather eventful. After leaving John, she got drunk and was found entertaining a crowd of onlookers with her songs and fire engine impressions. She was arrested for drunken disorderly conduct and taken to jail to sleep it off. Well, that's one way to get a bed. If only she'd kept it. She woke up in jail and at 1 a.m., when asked if she was sober enough to leave, she said she was. They processed her out, and Kate wrote her name as Mary Ann Kelly on her release papers. As she left Bishopsgate Police Station, she told the officer escorting her, All right, good night, old cock, and off she went. He watched as she turned in the opposite direction of Flower and Dean Street, where John was sleeping and where Kate should have been. She was last seen alive at 1.35 a.m. at the entrance of Church Passage, now known as St. James Passage, by three witnesses talking to a man with her hand on his chest, perhaps trying to keep him a bit at bay. At 1.44 a.m., her mutilated body was found in Mitre Square, which Church Passage leads to, meaning that the man the witnesses saw her talking to was very likely the man who killed her. Her injuries were horrific. The killer, perhaps enraged, 
by his previous kill being mucked up by the jeweler, took his frustrations out on poor Kate. Her throat was, of course, slit. Her torso was ripped open. She had been disemboweled. Her kidney had been removed and taken. And her nose had been cut off. It wasn't her ears, but it was eerily similar to the dear boss writer's promise. As word spread like wildfire through Whitechapel of not one, but two murders, the Metropolitan Police chose to run the Dear Boss letter in the press on October 1st. Then, another letter, written in the same red ink and handwriting, arrived at the Central News Agency. This one referred to his kills that night as the double event. That nomenclature has stuck ever since, with this night and the murders of Elizabeth and Kate, known as the double event. If the other victims had had sad, small pauper's funerals, that was not the case with Kate. Over 500 people lined the streets for her funeral procession. Mourners, friends, family, and pure strangers crowded around to pay their respects and to demand justice. Predictably, the press insinuated and sometimes straight out called her a sex worker. She wasn't. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but she wasn't. She never had been. Her family demanded that she have a proper gravestone. She does. Though Kate had been troubled, she had also been deeply, deeply loved. Kate, who had always wanted to be a singer and who had sung ballads of crimes and murders, was now the subject of her own. Perhaps the killer was in that procession. In fact, based on most criminal profiling, he probably was. Killers always relish basking in their crimes. And he wasn't done just yet. There's one more victim. And her name is one we've heard before. Mary Kelly. The same name Kate had used at the pawnbroker and when she had signed herself out of jail that night. Mary Jane Kelly. Now, Mary Jane Kelly's story is going to be hard to tell because of all Jack the Ripper's victims, she's the one who's as much a mystery as Jack the Ripper himself. Seriously, we don't know who she is. We don't know if Mary Jane Kelly was her real name. It probably wasn't. We don't know where she was from. Nobody from her family claimed her body upon her brutal murder. Everyone who did know her reported different facts she told them about where she was from or where her family was from. Everything. It's possible she'd been married to a coal miner who had died in 1879. It's possible she was around 25 years old at the time of her murder. Mary Jane Kelly didn't want people knowing who she was or what she was doing. So that's what we've got. Sadly, though we've tried to paint a portrait of who these women were in real life, the only image we have of Mary Jane Kelly is her crime scene. Literally. She was one of the first crime scenes ever photographed for forensic investigation. A few things we do know about Mary is that she was likely from an upper class or connected background. She knew how to read and draw. 
She was at one time working as a high-end sex worker for a madam, not an easy position to get. She was not one of the walking ladies of London. She wasn't staying at a lodge house. She rented her own small, sparsely furnished room at 13 Miller's Court. But that fact is ultimately an unfortunate one, as the privacy this room afforded allowed the Ripper to truly go to work. Here's what we know. She shared 13 Miller's Court with Joseph Barnett, a fish porter she'd taken up with. She drank too much and often got into altercations when she did. She confided in friends that she was tired of the life she was leading and she wanted to return to Ireland where her people lived. Joseph recalled that Mary would sometimes open up her room to other sex workers on cold nights because she couldn't bear the thought of them out there in the bitter cold. We also know that just before her killing, Joseph had lost his job as a porter, likely meaning that she'd had to resume more sex work in order to make enough money to keep their room. They fought, and Joseph left for another place, though he visited Mary almost daily and did give her the money he could. The last time he visited her was the night of November 8th, He left, and later, Mary went to the Ten Bells, a famous pub which still exists as it was then, today, and had a drink. It's chilling to imagine the Ripper perhaps watching Mary from the corner, maybe even going into the pub for a drink and following her. Several people that night report seeing Mary with several men. One of the witnesses, George Hutchinson, provided such a detailed description of the man, including the color of his eyelashes, that it honestly stretches credulity. But at some point in the early hours of November 9th, Mary returned home with someone. Between 3.30 and 4 a.m., one of Mary's neighbors recalled hearing someone shout murder, faintly, but thought little of it. Again, this was the East End. The same neighbor recalled hearing someone leave Mary's residence around 5.45 a.m. Later that day, the landlord sends someone to Mary's room to collect her rent. She's several weeks behind. A knock. No answer. So he tries the door. It's locked. He looks through the keyhole but sees no movement or light. So he walks around the outside of the building to her window and pulls down a shade. And then he sees it. Mary's body, lying on the bed, mutilated beyond all recognition. The police descend on 13 Miller Court, and now they have two things on their side that they haven't had before. Time and privacy. They spend quite a while in Mary's room, looking over every detail, and they conclude that the killer, too, had spent a good deal of time in there. It would have taken at least two hours, they say, for the killer to do what he did to Mary's body. Her bowels are strewn around the room, draped on the walls. Her body is completely eviscerated, with huge chunks of flesh cut away. Her face has been completely hacked away. Her breasts have been removed. There is more, sadly. 
much more. But you get the picture. And so did the police this time. Her crime scene was photographed, and it became an instructive case used in police training from then on. At one point, they even photographed Mary's eyes, based on a theory that the retina of a murdered person's eyes might have the image of the last thing or person they saw imprinted on it. The only thing the photographer saw was himself. Joseph Barnett was called in to identify the body. He could only do it based on her eyes and one of her ears. Though no family could be located to mourn or bury Mary, Joseph made sure she was buried in a church as she would have wanted. She was laid to rest at St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Cemetery in London, and her gravestone reads, In loving memory of Marie Jeanette Kelly, None but the lonely hearts can know my sadness. Love lives forever. That was the end of Jack the Ripper, as far as we know. No further similar murders occurred within the next six months, and the investigation was wound down. Did the Ripper die? Plenty of other people in this tale had. Tuberculosis, scarlet fever. Did he immigrate? Was he arrested for some other reason? Institutionalized? We don't know. But the killings, at least the Ripper's kind, ended abruptly. The autumn of terror was over. But the impacts these murders had didn't end. Now, I want to be careful not to equate these women's murders as somehow leading to good. There's nothing good in these stories. However, their deaths did change things in London forever. Some of the changes were trivial. Bucks Row, where Polly Nichols had been killed, changed its name to Durward Street in 1892 in an effort to distance itself from her killing and its overall reputation. So eventually did Church Passage, where Kate Eddowes was last seen. Because so many of these murders had happened in darkness, going back to the Carters who found Polly's body being unsure if she was dead or drunk, the inability of witnesses to give good descriptions, the jeweler who found Elizabeth Stride needing to strike a match, an effort to put streetlights into the East End to provide the residents with more safety at night came to pass. And above all, as the press seized on these stories and re-ran them incessantly, the public was seized with something else besides the murders, the deplorable conditions each of these women had lived in. As the story went international, it was an embarrassment for London's dirty laundry, so to speak, to be aired. How could the richest empire in the world allow its own people to live this way, in such filth? In a letter to the Star newspaper, the playwright George Bernard Shaw wrote, Will you allow me to make a comment on the success of the Whitechapel murderer in calling attention for a moment to the social question? He was basically saying that the Ripper had done what a ton of social reformers had not been able to for decades calling attention to the awful conditions on the East End. Huge efforts to revitalize the slums of the East End were taken. Charities and philanthropies were started. In fact, Dr. Bernardo, who had been struck by his interaction with Elizabeth Stride, continued to dedicate his life to the rescue of children in poverty. And Bernardo's, the foundation he funded, still exists today and spends about £200 million every year on the cause. 
As we saw, Mary Kelly's death was instrumental in the progress of CSI and helped the police evolve their investigating techniques. In addition, the mutilation of all the Ripper's victims forced police to hone their skills in using the injuries to both link the murders and start to create a profile of the kind of killer who would inflict them, which furthered the studies of MO and forensic profiling. The obsession the public had over the moment-by-moment tabloid reporting on the Ripper case arguably had an impact on the popularity of crime series like Sherlock Holmes, which had until then been running in short stories in magazines starting in 1887. The surge in popularity for the genre no doubt helped the first official Sherlock Holmes book, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, to be published in 1892. And perhaps Sherlock Holmes was exactly what the British public needed. With no murderer ever caught in the Ripper case, how comforting it must have been to escape into a novel where the lead investigator always gets it right, always gets justice. The investigators in the Ripper case obviously didn't get it right. But by learning more about the women he killed, Perhaps at least one injustice is being corrected. They weren't just fallen women. They were lovers. They were dreamers. They were strivers. And they were survivors. Killer Trip out. Thank you for listening to this episode of Killer Trip. Check out all our other episodes of Killer Trip wherever you get your podcasts, or you can also download it in our Circa app. And with a Circa subscription, you'll unlock so much more. Immersive guides to Barcelona, London, Costa Rica, New York City, and some of the best travel podcasts around, including our fan favorite series, Passport. Download the Circa app from the iOS store to check it out. All right, guys, see you next crime. Circa, love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it.